Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. Today, our guest is CEO and CIO, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. Chris, good having you on again this week. Uh, looking back at, at the week we just ran through, uh, we saw, you know, today's Thursday morning, weekly jobless claims were released. Uh, we saw initial claims today at, at 1.5 million, uh, which is nearly spot on with, with last week's level. Uh, last week, we were at 1.56 million. Uh, we've seen pandemic unemployment assistance initial claims. Um, they rose a bit, up to 760,000. Uh, we were at 700,000 last week. Um, and now continuing claims, which we've, which we've discussed a number of times on our podcast here, which has is, is really been our, our primary focus, um, they were at 20.5 million, uh, and that is down slightly from last week, which was 20.6 million. Um, so, you know, the, the, the employment picture, you know, it, it's no longer deteriorating, you know, but these numbers are still huge, and, and they're still really quite bleak. And, and uh, you know, the first question for you today is, is, you know, when do you think we'll see an improvement in employment statistics? Yeah. Uh, hopefully very soon we'll start to see some improvement um, and, and it needs to occur. There's just no doubt about it. The, the longer we remain at these kind of elevated, sustained unemployment levels, the more permanent damage we're doing to the economy. And while the weekly claims have stabilized, you know, the continued elevation of the PUA claims and even a, a, a increase week over week is a bit concerning. But just the aggregate level of continuing claims would indicate that the unemployment rate sitting around 20 to 25 percent, uh, which just from an orders of magnitude is just outstanding. Um, and as we see, we've seen the economy start to reopen. As we know, jobs are a lagging component of that. Uh, and despite discussion around a second COVID wave, the reopening kind of continues. We're starting to see economies in the Northeast reopen. So we should see the stabilization of these higher levels begin to come down and the unemployment rate begin to come down as well as we move into the third quarter. I think it's going to be a relatively modest improvement, meaning it's going to go slow. Uh, it's going to be a gradual decrease in the level of unemployment. And that's really because a lot of these, as we've discussed, a lot of these layoffs are going to become permanent, just listening to company updates and, and company calls for the last week, a lot of these companies are indicating, look, you know, of the layoffs we've done, you know, a certain percentages are just permanent, uh, which kind of leaves credence to longer cycle businesses that are just now starting the layoff process. You know, they're not going to be hiring back anytime soon. And so it's going to be a real challenge to put a meaningful dent in the unemployment rate. Right. You know, certainly, you know, challenging, you know, road ahead is certainly you start to see these guys in late cycle. Um, you know, thinking about, you know, you mentioned, you know, the second wave and, you know, looking at the equity market, you know, the, the, the equity market fell dramatically last Thursday uh, on news of, of a second wave of COVID beginning to spread across the U.S. Um, you know, so the question here is, you know, do you think that a second wave of COVID is a real risk to the equity markets? Yeah, you know, this may be out of consensus. Like, I don't think the second wave is the big risk to equity markets. And I think it's it's easy for the markets markets to to focus on a trade versus a trend. And you know, trades over a short period of time can go very counter to the longer term, intermediate term trends in the economy. Uh, and we certainly saw that off the bottom, right? We we've seen a trade and a reflationary trade uh, off the March lows, and it's across all sectors. And clearly, there's some sectors that are going to benefit tremendously and other sectors that are going to be uh, 
prepared for a number of years. Um, but I don't, so I don't think it's, it's COVID, right? The, the, the virus itself is with us. We shut down so that hospitals could build up the equipment, doctors could be prepared, we could staff up to deal with these patients. And we've done that. And I think the market understands that. So we're definitely going to have hot spots. We could definitely overwhelm the system again. Um, but the ability to just shut down the economy like we did uh, in, you know, in, in, in March, I, I just don't think is politically palpable. Uh, at the same time, it's not beneficial at this stage, right? The, the unintended consequences of doing that are much greater than letting the virus run run its course. So I think the virus runs its course from here. I think individuals will modify their behaviors according to their their risk profile accordingly. So I really don't think this second wave is necessarily the, the threat to the equity markets that you may read about in the press or, or see on TV. Yeah. And, and I think it's probably presumed for most folks, you know, that, that they would think that the second wave was, was maybe the, the biggest risk factor facing equity markets. And so if, if you don't think that's the biggest, do you have something in mind that would, would potentially be a, a, a bigger um, risk factor to the equity market in the short term? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest issue is, you know, the catalyst for the uh, market rally has been the reopening of the economy, right? Things no longer getting worse, but a positive rate of change. Um, I think that what we're going to actually see now is, is the reopening of the economy is the risk, right? So we price so much good news and kind of a V-shaped recovery back into the market that if that doesn't, in fact, play out, um, you're going to have some some real issues in the in the market, and I think you know we'll certainly call into question the sustainability of the market rally. So, you know, just looking at this, you know, I'll give an example. So the stimulus is set to expire. So Congress needs to extend uh, the uh, the uh, unemployment benefits and the increase in those unemployment benefits, and if they don't, you know, they're going to reverse in the third quarter. And so what we've seen in the short cycle data since the bottom was both the pent-up demand coming back into the economy as well as the increased and enhanced unemployment benefits that really resulted in, in higher disposable income than what would have been the case without COVID. In other words, the stimulus was greater than the impact on the real economy. So consumers had pent-up demand, then they had pent-up excess disposable income, and that's really driving these short cycle data. All of that's set to reverse in the third and fourth quarter, right? The downside of that is the, the enhanced unemployment set to roll, roll off. Uh, certainly, when you look at the legislative window, it looks like it's going to be quite difficult to extend that. So you're going to roll into the third quarter having exhausted the pent-up demand, having uh, a reversal in personal income and actually moving into probably a negative real income situation as we see you know, inflationary pressures start to rear their heads. Um, and the market's not set up for that. The market's set up for you know, maybe not the same rate of change, but a continued acceleration into the third and fourth quarter. And we're already seeing very early indications that maybe the recovery is already starting to plateau. 
And what I would highlight is that when you track kind of hours worked, that rate of improvement on a week-on-week basis of hours worked is starting to flatten out. And unfortunately, we're flattening out at relatively low levels. So I think right now that, that without a doubt, is the biggest risk to the market. And I think it's why the market started to stall here. I don't think it has as much last week's sell-off was a structural event and just the positioning itself in the market. But we also started getting that short cycle data that's indicating, hey, maybe things aren't recovering quite as fast on a go-forward basis. And so I think that that data starts to manifest itself in July and August. Um, and we'll we'll see what it says. And if it if it's not if it's not better than what's priced into markets, then markets are going to be sideways to down. Right. We've just pulled so much forward so quickly on the hopes that we can you know restart and get right back to where we had, we had, we were in back in in January and February. And you know, if this doesn't play yeah. out, right, we we could have a lot of trouble ahead. And it, you know, one of your prior answers, you know, you mentioned the need for investors and allocators to focus on trends, right? And, and I was thinking about this, you know, over the intermediate and term versus the trades, right? The trades that they can move assets over to in the short term. So, you know, it, as we're coming into 2020, you know, many of the trends that were in place were late cycle, right? Do, do you think it's possible that COVID-19 shortened not just the economic cycle, uh, but also the downturn? Um, and then do you think that we may have already entered uh, into a new up cycle, right? And if so, you know, what are some of those trends that are in place? You know, I guess you kind of in short, you know, has this just whole thing been accelerated extremely quickly, and have we gone through the bump, and are we start back and maybe into a new up cycle? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, um, and a lot of investors are going to miss this just simply because of the unique nature of this downturn, right? You see depression level, economic contraction, you assume it's this long, drawn-out healing process. Well, it's really not, right? We had depression level contraction in the economy, and it happened over a not just intra-quarter, but really a matter of weeks within that quarter. So, yeah, I think we've seen the bottom, and we have already are starting the new cycle. Now, unfortunately, I don't think this next cycle looks like any cycle we've seen in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and I do think there's going to be very different trends moving forward versus what we've seen historically. Unfortunately, some of the prior trends are going to remain with us, right? So, the fact that we were over-indebted uh, was a significant trend within the last cycle. And while we've provided a lot of stimulus and liquidity to address the hole we created in our economy this year, most of that comes in the form of debt. So even if we do recover, we're going to get back to where we were in 2019 on a run rate basis, but with much higher levels of debt. So that means... Uh, you know, the indebtedness that was with us um, is going to remain, it means a fairly, again, stagnant real GDP growth environment accordingly. So we saw the last decade where we kind of had 2% real growth. My guess is looking forward, it's going to be, you know, 1% real growth. And that means an, a much heavier reliance on government support, federal government support, more coordination, which will be a new trend this cycle between the the Fed and Treasury kind of coordinating fiscal and monetary policy. And that means, unfortunately, one of the trends we've seen for the last 10 years of, of wealth inequality is going to be with us and, in fact, may get even more accentuated 
Um, and then we're going to move away from the re-leveraging that we've experienced the last 10 years into a deleveraging on the private side, not just in the U.S., but globally, while you know central uh, governments and central authorities are trying to, to lever up. So, you know, I'd like to say we're going to have a lot of positive trends. I just, I don't see it. And the other key trend that I think we're going to see in this next cycle is not expanding valuations for risk assets, but falling valuations for risk assets. And it's simply because we're going to have lower real growth. Um, we're either going to have lower nominal growth, or if we do have higher nominal growth, it's going to be because of inflationary pressures, uh, and that's going to lower PE multiples as well. And with the deleveraging and kind of the stagnant wages, you're going to see this heavy federal influence in the economy, and that really lowers productivity, and you get you know real unintended consequences because of that. So I do think this is a new cycle. I think it's a new cycle that's going to be dominated with the federal government as the lender and spender of last resort. And it's going to be a cycle that's dominated with changing the social contract. And a lot of that's going to come at the expense of, of, of capital and, and the positive treatment of capital relative to labor. And none of those things are incrementally positive for valuations. And, and as you mentioned, the the general push through uh, deleveraging, you know, do you envision, and, and with slower GDP growth, do you envision a, a deflationary cycle that is going to set in? Uh, I, I think absent the political will to offset it, we will be in a deflationary environment. And that's just, you know, the math around the economics that we face, um, both from a deleveraging, both from the, the substantial increase in debt, um, as well as just the demographic setup. So I think that's the base case. Uh, I think ultimately it's not going to be politically palpable um, for that to occur. And so we will get a policy response, um, and that will create its own set of unintended consequences. But, yeah, I think we move from deflation where we are currently um, into a very different environment, but not driven by fundamentals from the private sector, but from a policy push from the pub public sector. Yeah, and 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 just talking about you know government support, policy push. Um, you know, we've seen a, a just incredibly re heavily reliant on the Fed, and you know we've seen from the buying of corporate bonds to supported fiscal stimulus. And, you know, just all this, this government intervention, this Fed intervention, uh, yeah, I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on, you know, any potential unintended consequences um, that you're seeing out there or that could particularly come down the road uh, with such approach. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to have unintended consequences. And, it's, and I think those consequences are going to be uh, factors that, you know, to, today's investors just aren't used to dealing with. Uh, and the number one is I think we do, you know, move from this deflationary environment to a stagflationary environment where you see rising input costs, but not really increases in incomes and increases in, in real growth. And when you get in that environment, you know, margins become challenged. Uh, you know, your, your real disposable income declines. So you, know, you think we have social unrest now. 
you know, wait till you see modest increases in food and fuel and utilities and rent, right? And that's going to be the natural outcome, I think, of these policies, which is going to drive further unrest. So then you get kind of political solutions to economic problems. Um, and I, I, unfortunately, I think that's the world we're moving into. Um, and we're going to keep going towards this solution of, well, we'll just print the money, right? So maybe we'll extend the unemployment benefits and we'll have uh, more sustainable where you, know, you can earn more not working than you can working. Well, that has long-term implications for that. But ultimately, it should lead to a lower dollar. And if we are going to experience a lower dollar, then we are going to see this inflationary pressure begin to increase. And maybe stagflation ultimately does go to inflation. But it's going to result in, you know, the repricing of risk assets on a relative basis. Right? Okay. It's going to significantly change the winners and losers. And it may really come at the expense of large cap, you know, U.S. growth stocks. I know uh, people will will find that uh, silly to think that may be the case, but they're long-duration assets. And to the extent their growth doesn't accelerate and to offset uh, a falling multiple, then, you know, they will behave similar to a 30-year treasury bond in such an environment. Yeah, now, that's an interesting take. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great spot for us to kind of pull the plug on for this afternoon. But, you know, this, this has been really helpful. Thank you very much. I, I, you know, certainly look forward to seeing what the next week ahead throws at us, and we'll, we'll get you back on here and, and give us all the mental recaps. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, bye-bye. Information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.